Hey, we're going to continue our, uh, our series this morning called Evidence of Grace as we continue to just look at God's fingerprint all around us. We've talked about things like gratitude and generosity over the last couple of weeks. And, and this morning, I think we're going to talk about something that might even be more essential to the gospel, more essential to um, the hope that we have and what differentiates us from the rest of the world. And that is uh, the idea of offering mercy, offering forgiveness, receiving it and giving it. I mean, is there a better picture of what Jesus did for us? And so this morning, if you have your Bibles, open them up to John, the eighth chapter. And this is kind of just a launching pad for us this morning. We're going uh, to use this passage to kind of dive into this idea of... Uh, of offering mercy, um, but we're going we're gonna to cover quite a few passages in the New Testament. And so this morning, if nothing else, you'll be washed with Scripture, okay? Um, even if I say nothing that matters. But this is John chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 2, okay? John chapter 8, verse 2. And it says this, Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and he is Jesus, okay? All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let he who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. The context of this passage, you have to go back to the end of chapter 7 to get it. It was the last day of the, of the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and Jesus had stood up and cried out with a loud voice, I am the living water. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of water. This was a messianic um, statement. And it caused division among the people. Some of the people heard it and they thought, this is the dude. They, they believed what he was saying. But others thought, this dude's from Galilee. Isn't the Messiah supposed to... He's not supposed to be from Galilee, is he? And so there was division. And so there's some officers there. And the officers... They go to the Pharisees, and they report this to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees say, well, why didn't you just arrest him? He's blaspheming. The officer said, we've never heard anyone speak like this. And so this division arises such that all the crowd is dispersed, and everyone's sent home. It says everyone went to their own house. Well, Jesus didn't have a house, so he went to the Mount of Olives and spent the night... The Pharisees 
based on what I'm seeing here, started scheming. They, 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 they had to catch Jesus in something. They had, to, they had to manufacture an event that would make him look bad, that would make him look bad in front of the people. And so the next morning, Jesus shows up at the temple early. All the people come to him. He's teaching them, and the Pharisees hatched their plan. They had found a woman caught in the act of adultery, had drugged her to the temple, and threw her on the ground in front of Jesus. And they kind of tried to back him into a corner. They said, Jesus, the law of Moses says that we're supposed to stone such women. What do you say? And I've heard a lot of, pas- a lot of preachers preach on this passage, and you probably have too, and a lot of people kind of conjecture what was Jesus writing in the dirt with his finger? You know, was he writing the names of all the people, the, all the Pharisees and all their sins? There's a lot of things we could dive into. What I want to talk about in this passage is simply this, what Jesus responded what he could have done, but what did he do? Okay? Because it has implications for you and for me today. Jesus bends down in response to this question. He writes in the sand. They keep asking him. He finally gets up and he says this. He says, let the ones of you that have no sin be the first to throw the stones at her. And then he bends down and he starts writing The commentator, J. Allen Blair, translates Jesus' statement as this. Let he who is without the same sin cast the first stone. You remember what uh, Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? When he said, um, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if uh, someone looks on another with lust in their heart, They've committed adultery already. Anybody in here, in the room, honest enough to say, hey, I've had thoughts I shouldn't have had in my life. Which would make all of us adulterers, right? Let he who is without the same sin cast the first stone. See, Jesus didn't condemn these people. He let their own consciences condemn themselves. And one by one, starting with the older ones, to the younger ones, they dropped their stones and they walked away. I find it interesting that the older ones went first. Being an older one myself, I would say this, the older ones went first because they knew their sin better than the younger ones did. They'd been through, they'd made enough mistakes that you didn't have to convince them of the, of the, the skeletons in their own closet. The woman finds herself standing there with Jesus all by herself. Jesus stands up and he looks at, looks at the woman and says, has no one condemned you? And her response is beautiful. And I don't want you to miss it because I think we, we skip over things and we miss the beauty of it. Her response was simply this, no one, comma, Lord. That comma is huge. She's looking around. She had just been caught in the act of the most disgusting thing she could have been caught doing, drug and thrown in front of the Savior. She had no idea who he was until that comma. No one, Lord. Have you had a moment in your life where you paused enough to realize that you're in the 
in the presence of God? You don't deserve to be there. None of us do. But who condemns you? No one, Lord. That is crazy. And Jesus' response was even crazier. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. John Corson's commentary, he says this, Jesus didn't say, I won't condemn you this time, but if it happens one more time, then you're toast. That's what, yeah, you know, that's, that's like forgiveness, old school, like, that's not something my dad would have said. Okay, this time, but you do this one more time. He didn't say that. Hey, he said, you're free to sin no more. I don't condemn you. He could have condemned her. The Pharisees were right. The law did say adultery is punishable by death. Leviticus chapter 20, Deuteronomy 22, both say it's a capital offense. Jesus could have laid down the law. And we know he never broke the law. And so what happened? How did he let her off? Well, if you, if you read into the, the old Levitical law, there are all kinds of conditions. There have to be witnesses, multiple witnesses that get every detail right. And they have to, it has to be an unmistakable, conclusive case. But when Jesus started, bent down to start drawing in the sand, all the witnesses left. There was no one condemning her, and so he didn't have to enact. He could have. It's not that she wasn't guilty. See, condemnation was a reasonable response, but he chose mercy. See, he was modeling something with this one woman that he was about to do for the whole world. Because all of us are guilty. Every one of us is guilty. All of us deserve to be judged. He could have chosen that, but he chose mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment only in Jesus. That's only a Jesus economy right there. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's in James chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Beautiful passage. It says this, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Isn't that beautiful? The law of liberty. Speak and act as people who are going to be judged under the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus could have chosen judgment. He chose mercy. He chose forgiveness. He said, go, you're free to sin no more. And this idea of forgiveness and offering mercy, it's all throughout the gospel. This, this idea of Jesus offering it to us and telling us to offer it to other people, you can't have the gospel without that. We can't just have a one-sided gospel where we just receive forgiveness and we don't offer it. We can't have the one-sided gospel that we just receive mercy and we don't let it flow through us to other people. Does that make sense? See, the gospel is not, you're not the ending point. 
It's supposed to flow through you. See, this need for forgiveness, our need for forgiveness and our refusal to offer it, it's like the human condition. It's, it's like you can't paint a, a better picture of humanity than that. We all want to be forgiven, but we want to hold on to our right to not forgive, right? We want to be judged based on our motives, our intentions. We want other people to be judged by their actions. Guys, there's judgment without mercy for the one who shows no mercy. There's judgment without mercy for the one who shows no mercy. There's something in there about us forgiving other people. And it's all through the Scriptures. If you look at Matthew chapter 18, fascinating passage of Scripture. It's, it's about how we're supposed to get along. Okay, It's what to do if a brother or a sister sins against you. Okay, Anybody ever felt like somebody sinned against you? There's instructions in the Bible as to what you're supposed to do. But it's not how you're supposed to treat the world. It's how you're supposed to treat your brothers and sisters. That, that word for brother, the Greek word, is, is the word adolphos. Adelphos. It appears in the New Testament 346 times, 226 times. It refers to not a singular brother, but the brethren. People who share the same father in a kingdom. It's talking about the church. And so in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, there's these steps. So if, if anyone's hurt your feelings in the church, if there's a Christian that you have something against, this is what you're supposed to do first, okay? This is in the Bible. I'm not making this up. First, you just go to them yourself, one-on-one. You don't post anything on Facebook, okay? You, you just go to them. You don't text them, okay? Go to them, one-on-one. It says if they listen, then you've regained your brother, okay? But if they don't go, if they, if they don't listen, then you, then you bring someone else with you, okay? So then you, then you get a sidekick. Kind of, have you seen Hamilton? You get your second, okay? And then you, then, then you go and you, you try again, okay? But if they don't listen again, then what do you do? You church them. That's what you do. You take it before the whole church. And it says, and guys, I grew up in this, okay? I, and, and it's... It's, I, I have to laugh at it because it's so awful. I've seen people treated so badly by the church. Like the only organization in the world that just shoots our wounded. Let's just parade their sin in front of everybody, make them feel worse than they felt already. There is nothing about the gospel that's in that. It does say, hey, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector if they don't listen. Here's a question. How did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He went to their house for dinner. He loved them. He showed them kindness. Prayed for them. Guys, that's the role of the church. See, why all the steps? Because ultimately, when it comes down to it, your only choice is forgiveness. Only choice you have. Only choice you have is to forgive. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for you. So why the steps then? Well, it's, it's, it's pretty clear. It's talking about 
brethren. It's talking about the church, disagreements. These are steps towards reconciliation. It takes two people to reconcile. You can't reconcile on your own. But you know, and so you go through those steps, you're, you're seeking reconciliation, right? But even if you don't get reconciliation, forgiveness is your only option. Because it only takes one to forgive. And Jesus forgave you. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But see, it only takes one to forgive. And forgiveness ultimately doesn't just free the offender. Guys, it frees you. If you're honest with yourself, the things you hate most about yourself is the bitterness that you can't get rid of or that you refuse to let go of. Guys, families are broken. Relationships are broken. People are broken. People hurt each other. You've been hurt. You've been wounded. I know that. But when that becomes your identity more than Jesus is your identity, and you make that the exception, God, I'll forgive everything except that, that's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus came to give you. See, He came to give you life and life to the full, not just some religious experience and your bitterness over here that you hang on to and you go back to whenever you get angry again. It frees you. See, I, I find it interesting when I read the Bible how many times that if, you know, we read in sections a lot. You know, you, you read like the three verses until there's a heading in the next heading, and then we think, okay, we can stop now, because that was a lot, those three verses, man. But if you just read the next section, the one before that might make a little more sense. Here's an example of that. We were just talking about Matthew chapter 18, and I just told you forgiveness is the only option. He had just given the steps how to reconcile. And then the very next passage, Matthew 18, 21 through 35, is a parable. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. We're not going to read it today, but this is what it says. There was a king had a servant that owed him a ton of money. So much money that he could never repay it. The king had the servant arrested. He was going to sell his wife and children to help repay the debt. Servant begged him, please, please don't do this. The king had pity on him. He forgave the debt. Wiped it out. It's not like he said, hey, okay, you can pay me again next Tuesday. Or we'll set up an installment plan. Or I'll only sell one of your children. None of that stuff. He forgave the debt completely. Let's him go. The next thing the dude goes out and does is find someone that owes him a little bit of money. He chokes him. Has him arrested. Thrown in prison. Demanded he stay there till he paid everything. The king found out. This is what the king said in Matthew chapter 18, verses 32 through 35. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And listen to verse 35, because this is where it gets interesting so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. 
You see, forgiveness is our only option. Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Matthew 6, 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And I already read you from James. Judgment without mercy to anyone who doesn't show mercy. So this is where it gets confusing for me sometimes. Because sometimes I can, let my, I can let these things like, well, that verse is that, and this verse is this, and that kind of confuses me a little bit. Because, well, this is what I'm talking about. So we're supposed to forgive others and give mercy to others if we want to be forgiven and if we want to receive mercy from God. Right? So I said, we're supposed to forgive and give mercy. But don't those sound like works? Don't those sound like things that we're doing to kind of earn our way into a right standing before God? Or is it, or is it just me? I mean, doesn't Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift from God. God, it's, it's not a result of work so that no one can boast about it. I mean, that's in there, right? So why the conditional, well, if you don't, then he won't. I mean, let's see if we can make sense of that, okay? Because I don't want to leave you right there because I think there is an answer to this, okay? And it's a pretty simple one. Remember I said earlier, I find it interesting if you just read the next passage. We read James chapter 2. Verses 12 and 13 earlier. It's that mercy triumphs over judgment passage. I want to read it again, and then we're going to read the passage just following that, and then we're going to be done, okay? So this is James 2, 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. We love that part, the law of freedom. But then here's that other part that for judgment is without mercy to one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And guess what the next passage is? It's the faith without works passage. You remember that was a faith without works is like a screen door on a submarine. Y'all know that song? Rich Mullins, go listen to that song, okay? Faith without works is dead. And so we're going to look at that. And we're going to pull a couple of things out of it, okay? Y'all still with me? All right. So this is what it says. What good is it, my brothers? Same word. Brothers, brethren. If someone says that he has faith, but doesn't have works, can that faith save him? That's in essence what we're talking about, right? A faith that just does this, but has nothing to it. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? I'm so thankful we have a food pantry now. I mean, just something as simple as having an avenue to put food in hungry people's bellies without saying, hey, good luck with that. Tuesday night, you can, you can volunteer for that, by the way. So also, verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works was useless? 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and that faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We can stop right there. Faith was active along with works. Faith was completed by works. Person's justified by works. Do you have it now? We, we got this? I mean, so is there this big heavenly scoreboard or not? Is God up there tally mark? Yep, yep, nope, nope. And then at the end, he just adds it all up. Is that how it works? That's not how it works. It's not how it works. Hear me say this. See if this makes sense. Saving faith is not a result of works. Saving faith, the faith that you have in Jesus, is not a result of anything you do. But saving faith results in works. Saving faith will lead you to do the things that Jesus says you should be doing. In fact, God's already prepared those things in advance for you to do. That same passage in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, or is by grace you've been saved through faith. Well, verse 10 says that you are God's workmanship, created for good works, that He's already prepared in advance that you should walk in them. John Corson said it this way, it's not faith and works that save a man. It's not faith or works that save a man. It's faith that works that saves a man. It's faith that works. He's, and okay, so what are these works? What are these things that he's created in advance for you to do that we should walk in them? Is it it keeping a bunch of rules? Is it a bunch of thou shalt's and thou shalt nots and things to make you feel bad about yourself and feel like God's going to slap you on the head with a baseball bat if you don't do it? Is that what it's about? No. Not even close. I'm going to make it really simple for you, okay? I said this before. I'm going to keep saying it until I feel like you get it. Jesus on the last night of his life in John chapter 13. He was about to go to the cross to fulfill all the law. He looks at his disciples and he says, hey, all, that, all the stuff I've been teaching you, all the Old Testament, all, all, the, all that stuff here, a new command I'm telling you right now. Brand new. You've never heard me say this before. Brand new. A new commandment I give to you, John 13, 34. Love one another as I've loved you. Love one another the same way I'm loving you. Treat one another the same way I'm treating you. And that way the whole world will know you're my disciples. Not by keeping a whole bunch of rules, but by loving people the way that I love you. See, loving like Jesus is central to the message of the gospel. Forgiving like Jesus is central 
to the gospel. And it's forgiving people not because they deserve it. It's because you've been forgiven. Period. The woman caught in the act of adultery was guilty. Jesus could have chosen judgment and condemnation. He chose mercy. You were guilty. We sang it earlier. I was a dead man walking. Should have been six feet under. Should have been lost forever. But I'm forgiven. Not because I deserve it. You're not forgiven because you deserve it. But yet somehow we've justified not forgiving other people because of our own pain. Some of the saddest funerals I ever do are for families that had unreconciled stuff. Relationships that were, they, never, they never got reconciliation. They were never, forgiveness was never offered. Forgiveness was never accepted. And bitterness has defined for the rest of their days until they choose to not let it. Defines everything about the family, the relationship. Guys, some of you are like that today. And it's not that I'm trying to minimize your pain. But there's no justification for not forgiving. Some of you might say, well, if Jesus, uh, if that woman, if that, if that woman was committing adultery against Jesus, then, then he wouldn't have been so merciful. That analogy probably breaks down pretty quickly. Um, let's look at Jesus and the church. The bride of Christ. We're all in covenant relationship with Jesus, right? Have you been completely faithful to Jesus? He forgave you anyway. He continues to forgive you, releasing you from the weight of your own sin. And He says, do that for other people. You're not equipped to carry the weight of the unforgiveness. You're not built that way, so just let it go. Guys, evidence of grace in your life today might be just this simple. Let something go. The hurt that's biggest in you, the person you've said, I will never forgive you. Let it go. Free yourself. Don't let that define you anymore. Galatians 5, 6 says, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. Faith expressing itself in these good works that He prepared in advance for us to do. See, it's not that complicated. There's not just this, some big heavenly scoreboard. Jesus, okay, this is a scoreboard. Jesus won. And because Jesus won, you win. Now love people the way He loved you. I love the question in Andy Stanley's book, Irresistible. He just says, in every situation, just ask this question, what does love require of me? Not what rules am I supposed to keep? Not, does it, will this offend somebody? Not, is this politically correct? What does love require of me in this? What would Jesus do right here? And just do it. It could be that simple. Forgive one another. Not because they deserve it, but because Jesus did it for you. Show mercy, not because they deserve it, but because Jesus did it for you. Don't demand what you think you deserve. 
Jesus made Himself low in the form of a servant for you. He became poor for you. Lift others up. Make yourself low. Let go of some things. See, my prayer over you as we close this morning is this. That your hearts, that your souls wouldn't be planted in the past. That, that you wouldn't be rooted in what's happened to you in the past. But that you would realize that you're a part of a kingdom that's yet to come. See, you don't want your, your, the roots of your life digging into all the pain of your past and, and being grounded there. You don't have to be there. Jesus freed you from all of that. When He forgave you, how about we do the same for someone else? How about we look at somebody that doesn't deserve it and say, you know what? I think you're worth another chance. Pray with me. Father, your evidence of grace is all around us. And forgive us for being so quick to receive your forgiveness and so slow and stingy in giving it away. I pray for some people to find some freedom today to wrestle with some issues that maybe they just don't know how to, to deal with, but they're not equipped to handle. Just like you looked at that woman and you said, who condemns you? No one, Lord. Let us live like people who've, who've, who are going to be judged under this law of liberty and extend the same grace to other people. And that's my prayer. Let's worship in response to the Word.